Welcome to the Design Mind Frogcast. Each episode, we go behind the scenes to meet the people designing what's next in the world of products, services, and experiences, both here at Frog and far, far outside the pond. I'm Elizabeth Wood. Today on our show, we're talking about the future of banking. More specifically, how the true next wave of financial services experiences are becoming so embedded into our everyday lives, such a part of everything we do, that banking may become invisible altogether. You're going to hear a conversation between three leading voices in this space. Stephen Dury, Vice President of Financial Services for Frog's parent company, Capgemini Invent, hosts a discussion with Janine Hurt, Chief Executive Officer for Innovate Finance, and Michael Hart, partner at United Ventures and Industry Research Fellow at MIT. This conversation is also available on video, if you prefer, as part of our latest report, Banking on Invisibility, the latest installment of an ongoing series we call Chief Challenges. Check today's show notes for a link to learn more. Now, these three experts had a lot of ground to cover. So let's jump in. We just wrapped a panel discussion on invisibility, the future superpower of banking. From shifts in consumer behavior to the future of the digital asset economy, we've covered all the bases, even explored the importance of carbon and financial literacy among children from the age of 10. I'm delighted to welcome today two brilliant minds that I've been fortunate enough to work with over the last number of years, Janine Hurt and Michael Hart. So welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Stephen, so much for having me here. It's great to be here and be joining Michael. Listen, Innovate Finance is the industry body for UK fintech, and we are a membership association, we're a not-for-profit organization, and we serve essentially as the central point for all things financial innovation. So we bring together the startup community across all fintech verticals, but we also bring the traditional heritage banks to the table, and the big techs, and also investors and consultancy services as well. Our mission is very much to support the next generation of technology-led innovators to create that more inclusive, that more democratic, and that more effective financial services sector that works better for everyone. What's exciting to me about this idea of invisible finance and moving beyond the embedded finance is the impact that it will have on the consumer at the end of the day. And it's really important, and I know as we have our conversation today, it's really important, I think, that we look at it through that lens. So how are we, as a sector, benefiting individuals, benefiting SMEs, And how can we take a stronger responsibility around that as a sector as well? Thanks for the introduction, Janine. Michael, so thinking a bit about your background, you've worn many hats in your career. I know that's taken you into great insight into fintech, but also into some of the incumbent players. Can you share a bit of your insights on what you see from the roles that you play and the impact of invisibility and this embedded environment of finance? I'm still working with the 20 or 30 year relationship that I have with MIT and still doing, you know, data-driven research in a variety of organizations from very small early-stage startups right through to large institutional banks and insurance companies and asset managers. And we look through a a three-way lens, typically from the consumer at the beginning. It's much the same as it ever was, but more granular at greater speed with more confidence around the development of knowledge and consumer behavior. And so you're seeing these big shifts in value as a result. And a lot of companies have been disrupted across how they offer these services to consumers or their impacts on the environment or the ethical nature in which they're having to deliver those services. So this is a 
very timely and exciting mm. topic. I think one of the challenges many people that perhaps aren't so close to finance on a day-to-day -day basis face is this issue of interchangeable use of terms. Like, I mean, what is embedded finance? What is invisible banking? What is invisible finance? What's the creator economy? If you're not familiar with them, you don't know which term to use at which point. People get quite confused. Um, so perhaps we could start with embedded banking. I think on embedded banking, it's essentially accessing banking services without going through that traditional route of going to a bank. So it is also about making sure that you have access to the service at the exact time you need it, at the right time, without really having to work too hard for it as well. Yeah, yeah, I, need, yeah. I need access to cash, I need access to credit, I need access to capital, but I don't need to go to a bank necessarily to get that. That can be exactly. supplied up by a trusted partner or a relationship that I have with a provider. They can show me the best deals. They can show me because of my activity and my behavior that I'm due for higher credit for my loyalty, that I should have access to discounts and savings, and that these are presented to me not necessarily by a financial services partner, but could be through the supermarket, it could be through the travel company, it could be through my auto or mobility uh, mm. choice. So as services become more granular, they can be offered by non-bank providers. I'd welcome your thoughts on the, the sort of invisible banking and that invisible context of things disappearing versus that embedded environment. How do you see the difference between invisible banking and embedded banking. Is there a difference? I think to me, invisible finance is that step beyond where you don't think about the financial services at all. So for example, if you're in a car, you're coming out of a parking garage and the car automatically pays for the parking fee. It is just that one step further where you're not even contemplating the exchange, the financial transaction that just happened. Similar to the invisibility of Amazon services exactly. where you can walk into a supermarket and they identify you and they know your behaviors and they know your preferences and they can give you deals in next to real time and you can walk out carrying your bundle of choices and it's all done for you. I also reflect a little bit on that invisible aspect and in relation to kind of this emerging creator economy. The ability for I don't know, producers of content that over time, probably in the last 10 to 15 years, has seen a the creative aspect devalued because there's been no way of realizing kind of a commercial return on something. When you begin to look at tokenization, you begin to think of a digital asset and the, the opportunity to embed a finance aspect into that product. It creates a whole new set of power for the creators of content, whether it's, it might happen to be music, it might happen to be art. What are your thoughts on the emergence of that creator economy and the ability for invisibility to create a new business model and commercial value there. The creators or the makers have more information about preferences and it can be as vast as Netflix using algorithms to design and develop storylines for new production. It can be the, the creation of new products and services and made on offer for online. It can be right down to the definition of an NFT for some creative person to create a piece of art or some other form of craft that is unique and can be sold on a peer-to-peer -peer basis because the information is pure between the consumer who prefers something unique to the individual or the corporation that's going to make it unique for them and taking out all of those middle distribution and production inconveniences that take away a lot of the value chain. Mm. 
I mean, that the ability to cut out that group of intermediaries, but also not just in the original sale of some form of creative asset, but to realize some value further down the chain as well. I mean, it's art at the point it's originally sold. If it's collectible, often isn't worth what it is in many years time. And the artist at that point is not able to realize that the benefit of that value. But in that sort of environment of invisibility, digital assets, fractionalization, the ability to still own a fraction of what you created first so you can realize value as it's told in future. It creates a very powerful new business model for things looking ahead. So perhaps what we can do now is, is maybe step back a little bit and think about some aspects of what, what good looks like. I mean, where can we see some shining examples of fintechs or, or dare I say some incumbent players which have been experimenting in this area? If you were to reflect on some of the perhaps Janine, mm -hmm. the fintechs you've seen doing brilliant things, transforming journeys. Who would you look to as being a great example? Have you got a few that you, you naturally look to? Well, I mean, there's so many, really, and it depends what area of fintech we're looking at. Now, keeping with the vein of embedded finance, probably would look to some of the big names that you've heard of. So Checkout.com doing absolutely amazing things. We know Plaid is playing a key role, but also some of the smaller players, Airwallex, really supporting other companies in terms of embedding that finance and giving those opportunities to engage with the customer in that way. I think that there is an angle here when you look at the fintech community, and we'll, I'm sure, get into this in greater depth later on, but there's a flexibility, there's an ability to look at the consumer base, to understand the customer as well, whether that is an individual or a business, and be able to adapt and pivot to cater to their needs. And I think that is where we see successful firms standing out against those that maybe you know, aren't as successful or, or take a, a much longer journey to get to the point where we're actually seeing real impact and real change being made. What do you see as being needing to be true for invisible banking to really disrupt in the way we think it could? Well, again, it's this conundrum of invisibility at a time of transparency. So we saw disruptive models come and go from payment companies, you know, as early as the first generation of payment companies to more recent ones such as Stripe and Square mm -hmm. and the use of perhaps distributed ledger and tokenization and smart contracts is as we go into the carbon-based economy and the circular economy, we're going to see this dual effect of invisibility and transparency where we can tokenize a carbon removal credit, we can store it on a blockchain, we can have a digital twin between the Web 2 and the Web 3 version so that people are aware of its immutability and that it's been created and it's been managed and the value's been transferred and eventually if it's used up it's burnt and there's a public record of that and we have a better accounting system for those dematerialized assets and they do have an asset backing and they do have substance in the form of both their digital and their physical form and they're effectively asset backed and properly recorded and they do it you know, those transactions are done on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. We don't need a, a central financial system to monitor that or to prove that they exist and to prove that they've been exhausted. Mm. This way we can see that, you know, there are reliable project developers in developing countries and corporations, whether it's Microsoft or Salesforce or Amazon, can buy those credits from those countries and do that on a peer-to-peer -peer and trusted basis. And so you have at the same time, invisibility and transparency and trust. Yeah, and the transparency is hugely powerful, especially in light of the news coverage at the moment around greenwashing. You start mm -hmm. to think about the power of 
Invisible Finance and the opportunity to bring that level of visibility at a very granular level into specific projects, you totally change the game in terms of how things become measurable and create an opportunity for certainly larger firms and investment to flow to places that have the right and the biggest impact. So it leads me on to a little bit about in this environment of invisibility, who benefits the most? Now, you've got an incumbent market of established banks trying to understand how to respond to some of the business model disruption. Mm -hmm. You've got a whole host of very creative new fintechs coming in to this space, redefining the very parameters of what it means to be in finance. I think that was done for me. I see that being done a long time ago. Whether the regulators have responded with a new perimeter or not, the perimeter for banking and finance has expanded to include e-commerce providers, retailers, fintechs, banks. Everyone's coming at it. So who's going to benefit the most? Who's best placed to go after this opportunity, do you think? We'll see a switch to value to the makers and those that are you know, ethically making things and that the consumer will be able to see where they are and buy them and know that they have the protection that they've come from an ethical source. And the difficulty with current financial systems and the centralized systems is they form regulation very slowly. And forming regulation very slowly is sometimes thoughtful, but in the most cases gives unscrupulous, non-ethical or unethical developers of things to be speculative and to make gains in the dark and in the shadows. And so I think, you know, a simple example is where at the moment supply chains are skewed and value chains are skewed away from the makers of things. You, you know, you only have to look at good farmers and ethical foresters that are creating new sources of carbon removal and creating new natural capital carbon sinks and developing new ways to improve water quality or access to water, improving other biodiversity credits in the form of better atmospheric management or better indigenous and cultural amenity and opportunities for workers in new industries. And they currently do not get the value for it because the regulation and the accounting system has not been developed to support that ethical investment. And so, you know, we've seen an enormous amount of progress go through the digitization of ESG, and yet we don't have enough impetus of investment going after those impact opportunities or those ethical opportunities. And the ability to tokenize these things, to turn them into digitized assets, we can regulate them and we can make the markets transparent and we can give access to ethical consumers so they can move the balance of power to the value to the maker. And that's what these digitized, transparent mm -hmm. systems can do and operate faster than regulated markets. Can I build on this, actually? Because I 100% agree, especially with the regulation point, and it's worth us potentially revisiting that in terms of the role of regulation to, to foster some of these great technologies. But I would even build on that in terms of your question, is who's set to benefit the most? Really, we should be aiming for the consumer being the one who benefits the most. Right. And ultimately, I always ask our fintechs when they're disruptors, when they're trying to change the market, are you different or are you better than what is currently out there? And hopefully that should be so much at the core of all of these changes and the new technology should be driving a better experience, a better outcome, cheaper, more accessibility for the end consumer. So my hope is really that is the consumer that benefits at the end of the day. Fantastic. So one of the powers of invisible banking and invisible finance is the distribution of value to those that have helped to create it, the makers, and a real focus on getting to a business model and a market that's driven customer first. It's driven business first. 
that really sharp focus on innovation at the point of the need, I think is a very nice start point for what needs to be true about the ecosystem? Who needs to be within this in order for it to be successful? Because it takes multiple players to start to create that level of transparency. So I'd like to explore a little bit of what needs to be true about the ecosystem for this to be successful. And perhaps you could dive into one or two examples of where you've seen maybe great collaborations that have worked well and, and perhaps what's learned. We are a big believer ultimately of the importance of competition, but also in the same lens, the importance of collaboration. And so from my perspective, I think you need to have all of the stakeholders coming to the table if you're going to see real transformation for the better. That means the industry stakeholders. So it is the startup community. It's the fintechs. It's the large incumbent players. It is also the big techs. But I would also add that there's a really important role here for the regulators and for government as well. And we look at things where the UK industry body for fintech. So I'm looking at this from a UK perspective. And I think if we are going to move financial services forward in a positive direction, everyone needs to be moving in that same and looking in that same direction together. So we talked and you touched on regulation. Let's think about consumer credit. For example, we know that the Klarners of the world, the Zilches of the world has absolutely transformed that space on the buy now, pay later agenda. We've been looking for regulation to come much more quickly. There was a great consultation but we need to see that move at a bit of a faster pace to be able to ensure that consumers are benefiting from these new technology and from these new players as well. So there are so many different scopes where it is industry leading the way and you need to have the disruptors at the table to then drive the heritage players to actually change as well. But you need to have some of that facilitated by the regulators and the government taking those decisions too. We need to allow for very long-term shifts of capital so you can actually invest mm -hmm. in those new customer services or those new supply chain infrastructures or to get sufficient capital to chase after returns in ESG or some other sustainable form of production. It's quite hard for the government to step in and say this is in the long-term good of the market. So I don't know what the secret is, but it's some mixture of incentive, it's some mixture of enabling capital to flow toward where the R&D is going and some sort of tax regime which attracts the capital in the general direction. You know, it's been super helpful to set down 2030 or 2050 goals and see very responsible corporations like Microsoft step into the breach and, and honour their commitments and try to drive market efficiency and get some of those incentives and point toward the right investment for high quality sustainability decisions, both at the natural capital and some of these new synthetic alternatives. So that the more we can get good practice from those large corporations, it leads the market. So moving on from the, the climate and sustainability side, think a little bit about the social implications of invisible finance in the context of somebody perhaps struggling to manage their yeah. finances at the moment and spot something they've been desperately looking for for a period of time mm -hmm. that seems eminently affordable now because it can be phased over three payments and it just happened at the point I checked out. What are some of the social responsibilities here around the scaling of invisible finance? Yeah, I, I, th I think it goes, to be honest, beyond just invisible finance. I think it's a question that we all need to put out when we look at financial innovation more broadly, making sure that what we are doing is better at the end of the day, not just something that's different. What I would say is that when you look at something like the cost of living crisis or even through the COVID pandemic, there are so many use cases and examples of where financial technology and financial innovation played a core role in helping consumers through those difficult periods. 
I think it's important we also look through that lens as well. Uh, we actually have a report coming out at Innovate Finance that's focusing on the role of fintech in the cost of living crisis and is looking at the different ways that fintech providers are specifically helping individuals and small businesses through this period of economic turbulence, economic uncertainty. I think there is a level of making financial services easier. There's a level of making it more cost effective and cheaper. But there's also a part here around education and making it simpler to access. And there are so many examples of fintechs that are doing that, even looking at some of the challenger banks, just the engagement with the consumer, but the opportunity for them to specifically see and drive savings around tangible goals or understand where their money is going. We work with Adam Bank as an example that is looking at data from what their clients are spending on to predict if they may down the road face financial difficulties and see if they can intervene at that point in time or suggest alternative ways of engaging. And so there is all of this opportunity where we can look at technology as a force for good, but we have to make sure that we are putting in place the right construct so that consumers can utilize it in the right way as well. And there is a responsibility on the sector to educate too. So it's not just about the extension of products at the point of something that's so convenient that I can take it out. It's how you leverage the access to data and access to that insight in that same real-time manner to empower you to own your finances, to make better decisions, to, to manage them more efficiently. But from your perspective, Michael, I mean, I think um, some very interesting emergence of some of the super apps and the wallets through China, for example, which have totally changed the way experiences work for consumers, where the financing is almost invisible. That is a kind of a contrast to the European markets is quite different. I mean, I welcome your sort of thoughts on anything you've perhaps seen between the two when it comes to the experience of the consumer, their ownership and control of their finances and the sort of responsible social practices there. Yeah, you know, putting aside social and geopolitical and other issues, the Chinese certainly developed this idea of a super app somewhat inadvertently. You know, the access to credit was strangled by large banks in China, and the government said to the two biggest internet companies, use your access and power to make it inclusive. And you got this wonderful phenomenon of cash that was sitting around otherwise in payments or lazy wallets being scooped up and swept into money market accounts and those money market accounts aggregating capital faster in two and a half years than you know 200 years of commerce and investing in North America. So you had you know money market funds larger than the three biggest mutual funds in North America in a space of a couple of years and all that money coming out of the banking system and operating unfettered through payment networks on the web and largely hoovered up by the likes of Alibaba and Tencent, all for the benefit of the consumer and all for the benefit of consumers to become savers. That model hasn't really exported anywhere other than China because it was basically the government saying, you guys do this and get it done. And it was done. You know, long come a few pretenders in the form of Facebook and others trying to do something similar and right up through to Square and Stripe more recently trying to be that super app for the Western Hemisphere. Not quite getting there with the convenience or the breadth of offer, and certainly not for or to the advantage of consumers. But I think there is sufficient demand from consumers for an inclusive and affordable set of services. And, you know, we yet to see that at the moment, you know, Apple could do something very similar, but it's for the mass affluent. And so we've got a lot further to travel for corporations to be able to offer things at the right price. And 
you know, we, we were a long way along that path when we got disrupted by COVID and governments having to print money flat out to uh, try and keep people feeling like they had money in their pockets. And now we're, you know, we're paying the price for that with inflation. And that's why we have a cost of living crisis. So there's a lot more to do. And government has a greater role to be able to increase liquidity, increase access to credit, increase access to other financial services from education to healthcare and make those more accessible to everyone at the right price. Regulators have a role in this as well, right? Because we talk about making sure we're shining a spotlight on the good actors and and kind of cutting out the bad actors. And that's one of the reasons, you know, there seems to be this misconception in the fintech industry that fintechs want deregulation. It's really not the case, right? They want better, more effective regulation because ultimately that will weed out the bad actors and enable those that are bringing positive innovations to the table and to allow that innovation really to thrive and to flourish as well. Yeah, and I think I'm thinking about that regulatory angle. I I remember hearing the Klarna team talk last year's IFGS, actually, about the rise and the focus on digital assistance and the ability to use AI as a power for engaging people in their in making different decisions or different choices and that the battle for that interface is really where I think when you look at the future of invisible finance being able to operate behind brilliant digital assistance in the context of the different roles and the jobs to be done in my life whether it's my home or whether it's my commerce becomes quite quite powerful so it brings us on a little bit to the relationship between AI and invisible finance and when we perhaps think about an example a future where the very fragmented and disconnected experience of buying a home, owning a home, selling a home, renovating a home, living in a home, making a home more sustainable. And the whole set of services that orbit that, whether it happens to be Internet of Things and the power of payments to be made at the point there isn't sufficient milk on my shelf so that milk turns up for me or... It's challenging the principles of how things are financed, perhaps the emergence of property-linked finance, which I know is something looking at in the UK. It's been adopted in the US where almost you're beginning to move in the direction of a bank account for a home or a balance sheet for a home, which when you sell it, it goes with the home along with all of the data and the insight that sits behind it. I'd love to unpack a couple of examples where we, we think about a future in that context, whether it is in home, whether it's in automotive, whether it's in commerce, that would inspire you? What would maybe you like that to look like, even if it's not a case of something you've seen at the minute? So, Michael, you, you're looking desperate to jump into this one as, a, as first no, off the bat. Is, this, is, like... this is the horror, right? Um, you know, I've, I've read too much and seen too much and seen the sausage factory from the inside. You know, I saw two cases recently where a married person couldn't get a bank account because they had the wrong details on their on their driver's license. And yet, you know, an oligarch that was parked in London could get a bank account by tricking the system. You know, I've seen cases where people in the US, you know, working for a large global bank can't afford to pay the school fees. There's something really wrong where we've put all these systems and safeguards into these big financial organizations and it's not working. The protections that are there for ordinary people are just not working and and the pay that they get from working in those corporations just not enough to get by there's something seriously wrong with the systems so we can talk invisible systems all day long and we can talk about the future all day long but currently it's just not working for normal hard working 
people. So what I'd like to see is something that fixes that, you know, a transparency of technology that does safeguard the users, but also gives them affordability of services. And the only way to do that is for the producers and the consumers to be on open networks in the same way that we've had Go Compare for insurance or we've had the ability to go and compare service or goods and service offerings and strike a, a deal between the maker and the consumer and do that in a transparent and open way and take out all the middle cost. And that, that links into a lot of what's changed with, I guess, aspects of open data, open finance, open banking, a future of smart data. And that's beyond financial services as well. You, get a, you can arrive at a future which has a greater level of transparency if you're empowering businesses and consumers to own their data and be aware of the value of exchanging it, which has a whole host of challenges with you know, privacy, kind of value exchange. Are there examples in that sort of open and transparent environment where you've seen some brilliant use cases that have enabled, I guess, finance to exist more invisibly? or to be embedded more intelligently as a way of kind of shaping that sort of future value exchange and the outcome for the consumer? I, I mean, I think on the open banking side, and this is something that we talk a lot about at Innovate Finance, there is such a huge opportunity there. And the use cases that we've seen even thus far have proven that during the cost of living crisis, for example, different opportunities for fintechs to play a role in terms of, you know, where can individuals budget more closely or where can they save in different areas. And that has been really, really foundational and quite impactful. I do think there's a path to take between open banking through to open finance and then to open data more broadly, because ultimately, once you get to open data, you start seeing an impact not just in financial services, but it moves into the energy space as well. And there is an opportunity for not just personalization of engagement with the financial services ecosystem, but actually the benefit mm. and the impact coming from that too. But Michael, yeah, I'd like to be able to buy forward the education services or the healthcare services or the other financially backed services, whether it's lifestyle, but you know, particularly as we look to plan forward for you know asset management and insurance, have the financial service provider show us where the best education, the most affordable and quality education or healthcare or other services are available and help you plan for that and have a whole of life service partnership where you can prepare for or finance forward some of those bigger acquisitions, whether it's a, a healthcare service mm. or an education service and be able to plan for that and be able to know that it's going to be affordable in the future. And on the open finance and the open open banking piece and there's some amazing companies doing really great things in the space right there's there's everyone from plaid to true layer to tink but also organizations like starling that are utilizing the platform engagement with other fintechs to really facilitate a better engagement with the ecosystem and with the client i do think one thing to be said and this goes back michael to your point earlier as well is in order for open banking and then for open finance and open data to actually work you need to have the incumbents or the heritage players signed up as well, because it is an ecosystem play. So as long as you have the disruptors that are there and able to take that data and assess it and utilize it in a better way, you still need to have the incumbent and the legacy players agreed and signed up. And that is a difficult space to get to. We just finished the strategic working group for open banking and OBIE looking at the next steps. But it is hard to get everyone from different perspectives around the table moving in the same direction. And again, sometimes you do need the hand of government or regulators to push that and facilitate that forward. 
Yeah, I think it's that's a br brilliant segue into some of the challenges faced with legacy technology. Actually, there's an aspect of how much the more established players can see potential value in that versus the capability and the technology that they're trying to change to enable them to engage in the way that the other newer entrants and the participants would like to see. Most of that legacy was built up specifically for backward accounting for regulators and for shareholders. You know, the accounting systems weren't for customers. They would count up the beans to say how much we piled up this month. Increasingly, customers want high frequency and accuracy in decision making. And so that's a whole host of new investments on top of that legacy. And as the regulators are saying, well, you can't do this and you can't do that, or you have to do it this way, most of the money has gone into shoring up the performance of those old systems, making it more expensive to serve customers. And until we figured out a way to cut all that legacy out, we're still going to carry that cost. That did actually give the opportunity for neobanks to scale, but they haven't, and they haven't reached enough scale yet, or they haven't reached sufficient profitability to be able to offer replacement disruptive services. And so we're going to bumble along again for another decade, saying that, you know, the biggest problem with legacy banks is their legacy technology, but we all bear the cost of that until such a point where we can make the switch. We're going to take a short break. When we return, the conversation on the future of banking continues. Hi, I'm Sean Rhodes, Executive Design Director in Frog North America. The financial services landscape is evolving. We're seeing the rise of next-gen banking models and a wave of new products and services that are tailor-made for a world with dissolving boundaries between sectors. Frog's latest Chief Challenges report, Banking on Invisibility, is a multifaceted response to the ever-shifting financial services sector. In it, industry experts explore next-generation banking models outlining how to unlock emerging opportunity areas for financial institutions and customers alike. Check the show notes for a link to download Banking on Invisibility, read the report and explore the big issues facing business leaders and innovators today. Now back to our conversation with Stephen Dury of Capgemini Invent, Janine Hurt of Innovate Finance, and Michael Hart of United Ventures and MIT. There are some aspects when you look at the wave of open banking changes and think about the evolution of things like VRP, so variable mm. recurring payments. Yeah. And coming back to a little bit of how something like variable recurring payments, VRP, in combination with AI could create kind of a bit of a superpower there for, I guess, the more creative of the fintech players to push more towards complete self-drive finance. Because that's where the money and the management of money becomes that much more invisible. When you begin to look ahead to invisibility, use of data, power of AI, how do you see that future which could take you down a path of self-drive finance and, and who the winners might be in that space? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be a bank. We, we get wedded to the trust of bank brands being central to many of these things. And I think the era of we are big, they will come, or we're a bank, we've always owned this space, are no longer true. Well, if you have the best models that can answer the questions fastest, have access to yeah. the best computer across the widest network, you win. And I think, you know, again, Microsoft are in the, the driver's seat because they can, for the needs, you know, for people's financial needs, quickly assess their cash, their credit, 
and their capital needs, whether that's an individual, a household, or a firm. And they can be the originator, and they can use generalized AI to identify people's needs at the changing times of the day or the changing times of the week or the changing times of the month and say, hey, we can pretty much predict what you need and we've got access to all the people that have offers for your needs. Click now. Mm. And uh, the bank's not in a position to do that at that speed or with the accuracy based on the timeliness of that need. So the bank's become a balance sheet. What are your thoughts, Ginny? So I, I agree with a lot of what Michael said. I'll, I'll add a slightly different different taint here. And then I think it will be less about which segment of the ecosystem is the winner. So it won't be so much, is it going to be the big techs? Is it the fintechs? Is it the banks? It'll be about which companies specifically are able to pivot, which companies are able to listen to the consumer and what's happening around them, but also which companies are open to partnerships. Because you mentioned, for example, Money Hub. They're absolutely amazing. A member of Innovate Finance working very closely with Lloyd's, for example. And I think if you go forward, looking at the future, you need to have the right technology, you need to have the right leadership, you need to have the agility, but you also need to be working with other players across the ecosystem. So it'll be less on a segment-by-segment basis, but it'll be more on which companies stand out as the ones that can do that. Fantastic. I mean, it couldn't be a better segue into collaboration. I've worked in a lot of collaborations between banks and fintechs, and some have been more successful and less painful than others. When you look at your experiences of great collaborations and partnerships that have changed an experience for a consumer or moved to market. What are the characteristics? What, what makes a good outcome there? Transparency. You know, uh, yeah. partnerships generally have to be 50-50, but that's not always true. When you can create something new in a new partnership, you can do 70-30 or 80-20. And as long as that's transparent, both partners can live. But you know, if you go into a partnership expecting everything to be 50-50, it's not every, every day that you're going to have a nice day. So you have to figure out who's created the value where, how's that value captured, and review it over time. So I will add another T word in addition to transparency, which I think underlines so much of what we're talking about, which is around trust. Because of all of the stories for the fintechs and the banks that tend to work successfully together, I can't tell you the number of times where it is literally about a personal relationship that kicks it off and you've got that personal, that individual at the bank that is their champion that is able to move those conversations forward. And I think that's absolutely core. I mean, we've seen over the years some really phenomenal engagements and partnerships. We see Thought Machine and JPM, for example, doing some amazing things. We had a few years ago Scalable Capital and Barclays, which created an offering for the consumer who could invest with under £5,000. We're seeing, I mentioned the Lloyds and the Money Hub, really exciting engagement there. There is another partnership, which, Stephen, is very close to your heart, is between Kogo and Santander and Tink which is very much around how do we drive a more sustainable future and looking at the ESG impact and the climate change impact. But all of those had a level of making sure there is a trust between the fintech and the large heritage or legacy player. I've seen brilliant partnerships emerge where you've got an understanding of customer need and you're thinking customer first, but you've gone into it with an ability to just get to some first insights that enable you to make a decision. And it's not necessarily a behavior that certainly the larger players in the market have find familiar. It's the desire to roll things over multiple years, make big bets over longer term. And by the time you get there, the world's changed and things moved on. So learning in small increments, lower cost and experimentation is hugely valuable. Michael, when you look at collaboration, not just maybe in the UK, but have you seen anything great and impactful in perhaps the SME space? Well, without mentioning names, I think... Just to build upon your two last points around the importance of 
partnership and the importance of experimentation. It's those combinations which have enabled the incumbent bank to break out of an old business model and create a new one and not be disrupted. Or similarly, non-banks in the form of telcos that have arguably been disrupted by the large internet service providers or the hyperscalers, whereas they've come along and they've offered similar businesses at much lower prices, but they've come with value-added services where they've differentiated from either the bank or the telco. And in fact, the bank and the telco partnering to create a whole slew of new services based on the data that they have, but only being able to do that in a partnership and only being able to realize that value by creating a completely new business through experimentation. And so I think, whereas everyone said, as soon as we had open banking and we had the creation of fintech, it was all over for the banks. I think as some incumbents have developed the ability to partner, some become better than others at experimentation, they've created whole new businesses and their innovation has been the change in the way they go to market, the way they govern, because they've created a, a new business on their own in partnership with one or other, either small tech or fintech or data provider. And they've only been able to realize that through experimentation. What's going to become the next challenge is being able to learn at a higher clock speed. It took probably five or 10 years for some of these banks to be able to even engage in agile or experimentation. The clock speed demand for that now has gone 10 to 100 times. Getting to a place where you've got transparency, explainable AI, and confidence from a regulatory perspective, but then also from a consumer perspective that the right decision is made, takes takes learning. It takes value accrues to those that often start early. It's how do you start early enough to begin generating that learning, to put yourself and your brand in the best possible position to generate value, to create value for a consumer and to, to be successful longer term. We'd, we'd love to hear any thoughts you've got on that sort of experimentation, because you must see some, the, the pace fintechs move at is incredible. And, yeah. and that's a mindset thing as well. It's a mindset, but also to your point around the brand piece, I think that's really important because we talk a lot and we, we historically have always talked about the bank engagement with the fintech community. But when we look at embedded finance, when we look at invisible finance, it is this partnership opportunity between the fintech and a non-bank player, like a retailer or a car or a, an Uber or whatever it might be that offers so much opportunity as well. So I think it's really important to look at not just the fintech incumbent partnership, but also where we see partnerships across a broader ecosystem. So whether that is the buy now, pay later firms with some of the large retailers in here in the UK or globally, whether that is, I know a few years ago, it was Zopa and Uber as well, engaging and collaborating. We even see beyond that partnerships happening across the space in the fintech community itself. So the marketplace effect where fintechs are working with other fintechs to really deliver end-to-end -end services to the consumer. Or you have cases where primary bid is working with Euronext or the LSE to really democratize investments. Mm. It's the importance of partnership in every single aspect of the whole ecosystem. That is what's going to drive, I think, this sector forward. Yeah. And, and get to a place where actually for a lot of this comes down to choices for brands, whether you're a new entrant or a scale player to make the right choice. Perhaps what we can have a think about now is in, in that context of what attracts talent to a firm. We talked a lot about transparency. We talked a bit about purpose. I don't know how brand shows up. Now, it's really clear that there is a battleground for talent right now in, in financial services and from those players that operate in that slightly extended perimeter that I described. What do you think is needed to attract talent now? 
I don't think it's ever changed, right? We have all these mm-hmm. names for different generations. I think we all want fun. We all want adventure and a little bit of risk thrown in. And we want some money so that we can buy the things we want and need. And I don't think that's ever really changed. So you want to work for a company that has great values or ethics and is working on exciting things and is going to get you involved on the latest, greatest fun things that are going to give you a sense of adventure and eventually give you some money. I would agree. And I would add that I think the last point you made is becoming even more important, this sense of wanting to work for a company that has a purpose or is mission-led. And we've been speaking to a lot of our members, especially across the fintech landscape, that are bringing in new Generation Z staff. And time and time again, the appetite for them to come in is based on this sense that the company they're working for has a positive impact on the world, right? Whether that is around sustainability, whether that is around driving inclusion, fostering financial wellness, that is a real draw for the generations coming up. And I think it's true for all of us deep down. When we pair that, of course, with the having fun, the sense of the adventure, and getting substantially paid for what you do as well to live the kind of life you want to live. The other piece I would add in here, which I think is important for us all to look at when we talk about talent and skills, is diversity. Because we've got a sector that isn't diverse enough. It has made a lot of strides over the years and we're doing a lot better, but we need to be focusing on everything we do. We have to have that underlying diversity angle. And that is around gender diversity, that is around racial diversity, ethnic diversity, LGBTQIA+, neurodiversity, everything combined. And I do think there's a huge opportunity for the financial innovation community to be leading the charge on that front for transforming the entire financial services sector. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think diversity extending to the power of this innovation to be more inclusive as well. Absolutely. You think about uh, the battle for talent and building teams that have got a diversity and experience. You get more impactful, more well-rounded, more well-considered products and services emerging in the market. Perhaps one thing we could explore now is a little bit around the power of invisible banking and to enable inclusivity. We talked about the creator economy, empowering people that have seen their value and attrition to their value over time because of technology now potentially coming front and center and being able to find a path to value from that brilliant creativity. What role do you see in invisible banking and I guess a more distributed model playing in a more inclusive sector and society when it comes to finance? Well, I I thought we were going to see a a bank of Facebook and that dates me. I still hope that there's some form of invisible financial model through TikTok and other social platforms where no matter what your talent, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, no matter what time it is, you can bring your best and show your best and get credit or value from doing so. That is the beauty of these real-time open systems is that we're all in some sort of community sharing something and trying to be valued for it, whether that's a, a financial value or some other social credit. So be it. You get recognition for it. I think one area that we we see already FinTech making an impact in terms of inclusivity, and I think moving down the lens of inclusive finance, is actually around credit rating because we know there are so many fintechs that are playing a core role in looking at data differently to decide whether or not an individual or business should be given that credit. And I think that's a really transformative innovation and a transformative space within financial services. I think at the moment it's more on the embedded finance piece. I think hopefully moving potentially down into the inclusive finance piece going for future as well. Mm getting up in the morning and thinking about going to the bank is not necessarily the most exciting thing to do but 
when you look at the convergence of you know, cloud accounting software platforms, you know, trade finance platforms and trade platforms globally, you think about how banks show up in that environment, the logistics, the credit insurance. There's a, an environment here that's moving to solve for a customer need or business need that is around sound, better business management. And it does feel like invisibility and the openness of data, the ability to create connected experiences is beginning to transform that. It's an area I've done a little bit of work on in the past, so I have some thoughts. But why don't, why don't you give us your version? Yeah, yeah. Or we'll tell you if you're <laughs> on the Give right us yours, and then we'll okay, turn. That's, that's the tables have turned. Enough about us. I mean, when I when I look at that environment, I I think very much about uh, certainly when I think about the financial crisis, yeah. and I look back to the challenge banks faced yeah. when it came to providing funding to SMEs and. The UK market was not massively different to other markets, and it was heavily influenced by the larger players. The balance of powers almost shifted entirely from the larger banks being the providers of funding to some of the alternative players. But when you look at bringing kind of business management together, what what I choose to check into in the morning, which might give me insight to what I've sold through my website, how my supply chain is performing, how my cash flow is looking in relation to needing to pay a supplier or pay my staff. That's no longer operating across four or five different systems. This is it's possible for it to be in one place, which, I mean, whoever that place happens to be has a power. And I, I think that probably in that sort of corporate and business banking space, this is, this is one area where I, I feel there's still enormous opportunity for... Yeah. Well, some otherwise of the it players becomes exploitative. You know, the, I think the underlying paradox is that in order for everything to become invisible, we need to know the value and cost of things. Mm. And... Traditionally, we have not taught children well at an early age the power of compound interest or the cost of things. And, you know, there are people leaving school that have no idea how payment systems work or how banks work or how they get a mortgage or how they save for the future. And that is a travesty. And and that flies in the face of all this talk of inclusion. If things become invisible and we do everything on an Apple device, we're running everything through Meta. There is a danger that illiteracy at a young age, that financial illiteracy, means that more people are exploited than those that can take advantage and fend for themselves. And so I think we need very early adoption of numeracy and financial literacy at primary school level. You know, no kid should leave school without figuring out how they're going to budget and how they're going to understand how to get on in the world mm. and maybe it has to be you know we we had there was a reading age level that you had to be before you could leave school well you you know before you're 10 you need to know how to invest like warren buffett mm-hmm. um i don't know what the age appropriate thing is but you you certainly need to know the power of compound interest mm. before you're 10 yeah and this is i mean this is so important to when we look at the future of the sector as well because at the end of the day, you know, we, we've got to teach the next generation about financial services. And that is an industry role. So you see a lot of fintechs in that space as well. I mean, Go Henry is a phenomenal example about teaching young children to better understand their money, but also through to teaching adults, but better understand their money, manage their money, grow their money. It also does require government and regulatory intervention. So the announcements from the prime minister about making maths uh, requirement up until, I believe, the age of 18, you know, all of these are steps in the right direction. Because in order for us to have a functioning financial services system and a functioning economy, you need to have that financial literacy as well. 
Stephen, to your point about the SMEs, absolutely. We've got some data at Innovate Finance that said between the period of the financial crisis up until 2019, you had so many fintechs and challenger banks enter the market that by 2019, more than 65% of all SME lending across the entirety of the UK was being done by fintechs. So either challenger banks or alternative lenders, which has showcased how transformative technology and new entrants can be in terms of just absolutely transforming the landscape. So I think we'll see something similar going forward. I think there's an opportunity when you look at fintechs that, for example, provide SME banking opportunities, they have a real opportunity through trust to be able to also provide the types of services that businesses need across just banking, but looking at different solutions for how to organize and run their business on a general level as well. And we're seeing that come out in different aspects as well. Mm. It's very interesting we talk about financial literacy because I've got a real passion for the fact that I think financial literacy needs to go with carbon literacy because the two are so tightly combined. The decisions I make of who I buy from, where I go, who I engage with, who I invest in, has a direct consequence. And the combination of financial literacy and carbon literacy at an early age will mean the next generation of consumers and business leaders is equipped to make different choices and different decisions. So perhaps the last thing to perhaps think about is, I guess as things become more visible, can you imagine a future that doesn't have banks? Yeah, and it's not, not a bad one. They'll exist in some form. They'll be the capital provider. There's a balance sheet that takes the risk at the end of the day. There's a relationship with some scalable capital providers. We're never going to be without a bank. It'll just be in a different format. I agree. We will have banks, but they will not look the way that they look today. And it will be a different uh, different type of an entity than what we know now. Brilliant. I just want to say thank you very much for spending the time with me today to cover so many fascinating topics. I mean, like we said at the very start, the whole terms of embedded finance, invisible banking, invisible finance, kind of the creator economy, gets used so interchangeably, but it comes to life when you talk about it in real use cases, brilliant fintechs or businesses doing some super cool stuff right now and some of the challenges for the bigger sector. So Janine, Michael, thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. That's fine. Thank you. Thank Stephen. you. Yeah. That's our show. The Design Mind Frogcast was brought to you by Frog, a leading global creative consultancy that is part of Capgemini Invent. If you want to really dig into the subject even more, you can also check today's show notes to find the link to download Banking on Invisibility, our latest Chief Challenges report. In it, you'll find three strategies for navigating the new invisible banking landscape. We really want to thank our experts for sharing their insights. That's Stephen Dury, Vice President of Financial Services at Capgemini Invent, Janine Hurt, Chief Executive Officer for Innovate Finance, and Michael Hart, Partner at United Ventures and Industry Research Fellow at MIT. We really appreciate your time. We also want to thank you, dear listener. If you like what you heard, tell your friends. Rate and review to help others find us, and be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Find lots more to think about from our Global Frog team at frog.co slash designmind. That's frog.co. Follow Frog on Twitter at at frogdesign and at frog underscore design on Instagram. And if you have any thoughts about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out at frog.co slash contact. Thanks for listening. Now go make your mark.